Hello, you're listening to On Israel, Al Monitor's podcast from Tel Aviv. This is Ben Kaspit. All eyes in Israel are on January 20th, the day Joe Biden walks into the Oval Office and banishes the Trump era. Fast forward to President Biden's first meeting with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Will the handshakes and smiles be overshadowed by Biden's disastrous visit to Israel 10 years ago, during which Israel announced the building of 1,600 housing units in East Jerusalem and set off a crisis with Washington? Can Netanyahu win over the new president and restart relations with the Democrats? Will the new administration follow Trump's lead in recognizing Jerusalem as Israel's capital, Israel's sovereignty over the Golan, and the legality of the settlements? And what is to become of the momentum in Israel's relations with the Muslim Sunni states, which was generated by Washington's intensive engagement? And we haven't even mentioned the elephant in the room, Iran. Israel views the Biden administration's policy on Iran as nothing short of an existential issue for the Jewish state. Netanyahu will spare no effort in trying to convince the new administration to avoid a return to the nuclear deal with Iran, to maintain the sanctions on Tehran and the Trump administration's policy of maximum pressure on the Ayatollah's regime. Netanyahu knows the odds are stacked against him. The Democrats vividly remember the, how Netanyahu tried to torpedo the Iran nuclear deal, which was the crowning achievement of the Obama-Biden administration. Biden knows that Netanyahu was instrumental in undoing the deal and getting the U.S. to pull out of agreement through his alliance with Trump. The one person in the world who may be able to make sense of this complex drama that is about to unfold in Israel's relationship with Washington is Ambassador Dan Shapiro. He was Washington's man in Israel throughout most of the Obama years. He was there. He heard and saw it all. He experienced all the crises, the bitter ex- ex- exchanges, the happier moments, the scandals that erupted, and those that shall forever remain in the dark. Shapiro lives in Israel. He knows the Israelis very well and their leadership. He is also a true blue Democrat, a Washington insider, and a former senior official in the National Security Council. No one is better equipped to walk us through the minefield that the Israeli-American relationship is about to enter. Ambassador Dan Shapiro will be the guest of Al Monitors on Israel podcast right after this short break. If you're listening to this podcast, you obviously care about the Middle East. And if you do, you should probably be reading Al Monitor. El Monitor is a global newsroom headquartered in Washington, D.C., with a network of over 160 contributors around the world. El Monitor offers first-class reporting and analysis from a range of perspectives and an approach that represents the highest journalistic standards, as well as an award-winning commitment to press freedom and independence. If you haven't done so already, visit us at elmonitor.com, check out our articles, and sign up for our free newsletters. There's a lot to choose from, including the Week in Review, an essay that offers unusual insights and forecasts into the region based upon El Monitor's outstanding reporting. And if you haven't done so, 
please subscribe to our El Monitor podcast on your favorite podcast platform on Israel with Ben Caspit and on the Middle East with me, Andrew Parasoliti. Delighted now to say uh, hello to uh, Ambassador Dan Shapiro. Uh, shalom, Dan, and thank you for uh, being here with us on uh, on Israel podcast in Al Monitor. Shalom. Uh, shalom, Ben. Good to good to talk to you, and uh, don't forget, it's former ambassador. <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, but the, you know the Americans. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. You 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 have this title forever, like president, like ambassador, like uh, secretary. Uh, isn't it right? It is one of those honorifics that you do tend to carry with you. Yeah, Senator, General, uh, Secretary. Uh, but uh, you can call me Dan, as you always have. <laughs> okay. Okay, let's start with the, with the hard topics. Uh, what do you expect to be the new administration's policies in the Middle East? And before going into the topics, in what place will be the Middle East situation in, in the new president's agenda? Uh, he has the coronavirus, he has a lot of global uh, problems. What do you think uh, uh, will be our life here with the new administra- administration? Right, I think that's actually a very important question for context before one even gets into the specific policies on the Middle East. And by the way, I uh, should just preface everything I say by saying I'm not involved with the Biden transition, so I speak only for myself. It's just my own right. analysis based on what I know, uh, not anything official. But It is true, if you saw the first day that the transition website went live in mid-November, uh, it had four pages of preloaded policy content, uh, things they had actually done some work on and written up. And they were, of course, things you'd expect, COVID-19 recovery, economic crisis recovery, racial justice crisis and policies to address that, and climate change. Uh, these are the main four issues that the president-elect has come back to again and again during the transition. He gave a big speech the other night on uh, pandemic response and the vaccine and, of course, the economic recovery package. This is what he's focusing on, and I think it's what they will continue to make their primary focus and what they expect the American people to judge them on, uh, at least in the early period. When you pull back from that to foreign policy issues, what are the issues that he has spoken about most often? I would say first and foremost, restoring uh, the United States global alliances with NATO, with the countries of Asia, with the, the core of the US alliance system that has been under stress during the Trump years. Second would be restoring US leadership on the global multilateral uh, problems and challenges and, and institutions. So COVID, uh, climate, uh, Paris climate accords, migration, nonproliferation, these kinds of things. Third would be the global uh, strategic rivalry with China, which has every dimension, economic, security, military, and technology. And fourth would be Russia, which is still a, a major challenger to US interests uh, around the world. So that's before you've even gotten to the Middle East. And I think it's fair to say that the Middle East, uh, while important, and it's always going to be important, including, of course, the close US-Israel uh, partnership and ensuring Israel's security, is uh, not going to be the issue that will dominate the attention of the president and the vice president, the Secretary of State, as often as it may have in the past. Certainly Iran, and we'll get to it, I'm sure, will, will probably be an exception in that regard because of the risk of, uh, of Iran's nuclear program. Uh, and certainly there, there will continue to be uh, close partnerships, and Israel is, is first and foremost among them, 
Uh, but I do think that's important background and context for the rest of the discussion. And as you said, we'll uh, dive into the details a little later, uh, but uh, still generally uh, speaking, can, you, can we have uh, from you as, as the guy that was there uh, almost the whole uh, eight years of the Obama administration and knows very uh, intimately all the, uh, the players uh, in, in this new game, any tips, lessons, conclusions for how US and Israel can work together even uh, where there may be differences or how will Bibi Biden relationship play into it? So the United States and Israel uh, are uh, close partners, obviously because of their shared strategic interests, Israel's, uh, the United States interest in Israel's security, the fact that both of us uh, have always had to work together to manage other uh, challenges and crises in the region from instability to terror to nonproliferation. Uh, of course, Iran's aggressive activities and nuclear program uh, are, are chief among those challenges. Uh, of course, the shared values of our two democracies is, a, is another very important basis of, uh, of the partnership. And nothing about that changes. And I think you will certainly see a Biden administration uh, remain utterly committed to the U.S.-Israel security partnerships. Him, Biden himself, as a senator and then as vice president, was very involved in supporting military assistance as vice president of the Iron Dome and tunnel detection technology and intelligence sharing and joint training of the militaries and, of course, the $38 billion dollar uh, MOU. He's also been, and I'm sure will, be very protective of Israel's legitimacy anywhere it's challenged and its right to defend itself anywhere that is challenged, if it's by the UN or the Palestinians or at home uh, by the BDS movement. Uh, and so I think those fundamentals are, are absolutely there. Um, it's also true, of course, that uh, at various points during this relationship, uh, the United States and Israel have disagreements. And that is not an unnatural situation between two countries whose interests overlap very, very strongly, but are not identical. Israel is a smaller country. It's a regional power, but uh, not a global power. It has obviously the proximity to these threats in a way that the United States doesn't. And the United States is larger and has different military capabilities and global responsibilities um, and other relationships. So uh, it's not uh, unexpected that these two countries will at times uh, approach a common problem that they both care about somewhat differently or, or maybe think of using different tools against that. It's not surprising that the United States and Israel as two very close allies, but with, uh, not, I, with very close interests, but not identical interests because of their different size and capabilities and geographical proximities and global roles might sometimes look at a common problem that they both care about uh, through a different perspective or, or choose to use different tools. Now, it's always been the case, and this was even true during the Obama administration, when there were, of course, uh, some significant differences, that we have been able to uh, sit down together in a professional way with the top leaders of the political and diplomatic and intelligence and military arms of our governments and narrow the areas of disagreement and come up with common approaches and uh, obviously work through an issue that we both care about and we both certainly care about each other, uh, and uh, try to work together. It doesn't mean always agreement. And obviously uh, we know when disagreements have, have come up, but it certainly is doable. And one of the things that can help it, of course, uh, is the personal connection between the president and the prime minister. We know that Joe Biden uh, and Benjamin Netanyahu have known each other for probably close to 40 years. It's a real friendship. I've spent time with them on uh, uh, Biden's three visits to Israel as vice president uh, and some of Netanyahu's visits to Washington. 
they really know each other. They can have very frank conversations, including about things they disagree. But I think they both see each other as uh, real partners who really do, uh, you know, are really committed to this relationship. And that will obviously be part of the recipe of, of getting through points of disagreement, narrowing those areas of disagreement and finding a common approach. I want to, uh, to go into this uh, point exactly because I remember uh, one incident uh, back when uh, uh, Vice President Biden visited Jerusalem and during his visit, there was an announcement about 1,600 new uh, housing units in Eastern Jerusalem. You, I think you, uh, I know, I know you, you are the, the, the ambassador and it was a huge crisis, a real crisis. And I think if not, if they were not such close friends for so many years, it could be a lot worse. So I'm trying to see the, the full half of this glass. Well, that uh, was in 2010. I was actually not a ambassador. I was with the vice president on the trip. I was at that time at the National Security Council uh, at the White House and traveling with him. Um, and of course, it was during a period when uh, uh, George Mitchell, then our special envoy, uh, had been working uh, uh, with uh, Israel and the Palestinians to try to get uh, negotiations started. Israel had agreed to a, a settlement moratorium uh, a few months earlier. It didn't apply to East Jerusalem, uh, but there was still some hope, obviously, to generally uh, limit the number of announcements or the kinds of uh, uh, you know, projects that were advanced during that period. And so the timing was obviously poor uh, to have that happen during uh, the vice president's big visit. And, and certainly the prime minister said that himself. Um, and, you know, they, they, you know, it was a, I wouldn't say it was a major crisis. I really think that word got thrown around with a lot of uh, uh, abandoned and, and exaggerated uh, usage during, uh, during those years. But it was a, a significant disagreement. Uh, and it actually opened the door to uh, some conversations about what other steps uh, the two countries could take together, and obviously how to encourage the Palestinians on their side. Uh, to try to get negotiations underway. It was not a great successful uh, effort to get negotiations underway, as we all know, and not only because of that issue, uh, but it was a moment of disagreement. And it's the kind of thing where uh, countries should not surprise each other. Countries should uh, try to work out these types of disagreements when they happen, and they will happen as much as possible, uh, you know, uh, behind closed doors. It's something that uh, the president-elect and, and his team have said during the campaign uh, this past year. And uh, again, I, I don't think uh, either, I, well, I can't say, speak for anybody else. I'd be very surprised if a uh, president like Biden uh, goes into his uh, work on the U.S.-Israel relationship uh, dwelling at any length on that particular incident. So if we're talking already about the Palestinian track, let, let me close this issue and ask you before, before talking about the elephant in the room, it's the Iranian issue. Do you think uh, that uh, President Biden will nominate a presidential special envoy to the Middle East uh, or uh, even to, uh, to, 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 uh, for a new initiative, a new peace initiative between Israel and Palestinians? Dennis Ross, a, a person you know very well, granted an interview to Idiot Achronot today and said he hopes that there will be a Palestinian trek, Israeli-Palestinian trek. And finally, if you think maybe uh, the, the, the Obama administration, it, maybe it was a mistake to waste eight years on this uh, route that leads us to nowhere. Well, I don't know if it was a mistake in the sense that it is important. It's important for uh, Israel's security and its future as a Jewish democratic state. Uh, that's important to the United States because that's the basis of our 
common values relationship, which enables every other aspect of the relationship, including the security partnership. It's important because of uh, Palestinian uh, legitimate rights uh, for independence in a state of their own. It's important because of the contribution it makes to, to a better situation in the region. So I don't think it was a mistake to try. I, I'm not sure uh, everything that was done was, uh, was the, the right thing to do. Undoubtedly, mistakes were made. I also think the main responsibility for the lack of progress is on parties who just weren't really able or willing to make those uh, those kinds of necessary steps. But that's that's looking backwards, and, and I don't want to spend too much time on that. Right. Uh, look, I don't know whether a special envoy will be appointed. Uh, that's a, kind of a bureaucratic decision, uh, and you know, obviously has some impact on where this issue lands in the prioritization uh, for the administration's work. But there's no question, as as President-elect Biden said during the campaign. He continues to believe very strongly uh, that a two-state solution uh, in which uh, Israel and a Palestinian state can live uh, in peace and security with one another uh, is, is the goal, should remain the goal of U.S. policy. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean uh, beginning or trying to begin a negotiation on the final status arrangements of that uh, agreement in, in the near term. You know, the same leaders are still in place who have had previous unsuccessful negotiations. They really don't trust each other. There's a lot of mistrust at the public society, not to immediately drive to the solution, but rather to work on how do you keep it alive? How do you sustain the viability of a two-state solution uh, for you know, some more years when there's a lot of disbelief it's still possible, when many people are starting to say they don't even support it, and when certainly the Trump administration did not seem committed to anything uh, that looked like what you know, I think the, the, the more common definition of a two-state solution is. So I do think that the approach will be focused on uh, that sustainment, uh, which involves improving conditions on the ground, economic conditions, security cooperation, uh, getting Palestinians uh, to make some of the changes they need to make, such as ending the payments to prisoners in uh, Israeli jails who've committed acts of violence, uh, ending delegitimization and incitement, uh, certainly uh, trying to get Israel to uh, do less on expanding settlements and end any talk uh, of annexation. Uh, but also there's a new tool, the Middle East Peace Partnership Act that Congress just passed to create a fund to uh, dramatically scale up people to people uh, programs between Israelis and Palestinians to strengthen the Palestinian private sector, which includes a lot of very dynamic and sort of forward looking young high tech uh, entrepreneurs who can really be partners with Israel. And then, of course, there's the opportunity represented by the Abraham Accords. Uh, the normalization between Israel and Arab states is a great thing on its own merits something that uh, President-elect Biden supported as soon as it was announced. In fact, it may be the, the, the only sort of Trump administration foreign policy initiative about which he was very, very positive during the, uh, during the campaign. He welcomed it. He said it follows on work he did and other administrations have done to, to get Israel the rightful recognition it deserves in the region. And he would push it forward and try to get other nations uh, to join. And he hopes that it can also be a source of positive momentum uh, in the Israeli-Palestinian arena that there's things Arab states who have normalized with Israel can do to support uh, and in some ways pressure Palestinians towards uh, building the institutions and making the changes they need to support uh, and have a different kind of conversation with Israelis on the same subject. Uh, so that this will undoubtedly be part of the administration's uh, approach, I think. Uh, I can't say whether it would be a special envoy in charge of it or an assistant secretary or the local ambassadors. Uh, but I do think this will be uh, a policy that uh, will get some attention and, and uh, at which there are actually some interesting opportunities at this moment. 
So you saved the one question that I wanted to ask you about the momentum between Israel and the Sunni states. You say uh, that you, you think it will be, it will go on, and President Biden supports it. Uh, uh, but but uh, can I ask you if he supports the Abraham Accords? Will he try to reverse uh, other decisions or other uh, things or presents that President Trump gave Israel, uh, like recognizing uh, Jerusalem, the Golan Heights, settlements, etc.? Um, it's a question I think the, the new administration will have to uh, decide once, uh, once they get in. Some things won't be reversed. He said very clearly during the campaign that the U.S. Embassy will remain in Jerusalem. I think that uh, answers the question about recognition of, of Jerusalem as Israel's capital. I think the others will, will certainly be reviewed. Um, he has talked about uh, obviously restoring a, a U.S.'s Palestinian diplomatic track, which really kind of uh, withered. It basically uh, has been non-existent for the last three years uh, to ensure that you, what the United States can be a productive uh, mediator uh, between the two parties. Uh, that it may include a consulate in Jerusalem, it may include an office for the Peel in Washington, it may include other channels, and it May, and it may probably will include at least restoring certain uh, streams of humanitarian and economic assistance, not necessarily to the Palestinian Authority itself, but to the Palestinian people. Um, so, you know, those are those are opportunities. I think, of course, there will be a different view on the question of settlements than the uh, Trump administration's view, exactly how that will be expressed and uh, exactly what policies they might uh, change or, or, or do differently. I, I think those are details that they'll, they'll decide only only after they begin. Okay, let's uh, we, we, we reached Iran, and uh, as you uh, know very well, this is the core, uh, maybe even existential issue here in Israel, not only for Prime Minister Netanyahu. And what can we, uh, be done, in your opinion, in order to let Israel this time be in the room or close to the room of the negotiation? It's not a secret that the new administration will, will try and act to, to uh, resume the negotiation with the Iranian regime. And you know that Prime Minister Netanyahu is not in favor of going back to that the agreement, the, the nuclear agreement between the United States and the superpowers and Iran. What, can Netanyahu do something in order to, uh, to improve his position vis-a-vis -vis Washington when they're going back to the negotiation table uh, with Iran? So the first thing I think is just important to emphasize is that, uh, as I understand it, uh, uh, neither President like Biden nor anyone who will be working with him uh, will have any illusions about uh, the nature of the Iranian regime, about Iran's uh, malign intentions toward Israel and toward others in the region, about its pursuit of nuclear weapons, its support for terrorism, uh, its missile uh, program, and the dangers that all of those things pose. And, he has said very clearly that under no circumstances will Iran be permitted uh, to get a nuclear weapon. So those are, you know, just some important uh, foundational points. A couple other facts that sort of he has to deal with coming in is that uh, Iran today is much closer to a nuclear weapon, to being able to break out and achieve one because of the uranium it is enriching, because of the centrifuges it is installed, all in violation of the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, but all that started only after uh, President Trump withdrew from the deal in 2018. So the deal kept Iran at least a year from a weapon, verified through inspections. Today, they're much, much closer, two, three, four months from that weapon. So that has to be dealt with. 
Uh, it's also true Iran continues to be very aggressive in the region, in Iraq, in Yemen, and of course in Syria, where Israel has to continue to strike uh, Iranian targets. And it's also true that the U.S. Uh, under the Trump administration has been very isolated, has really had some support. It had Israel and the Saudis and the UAE supporting its maximum pressure policy on Iran and withdrawal from the JCPOA, but it had no support from Europe, no support from most other countries, and couldn't get various initiatives like the arms embargo and the uh, snapback of sanctions through at the United Nations because of that. It's also true, one last sort of prefatory point, that the maximum sanctions of the Trump uh, policy uh, have had real effect on the Iran's economy and uh, caused significant damage there. Uh, it's not exactly clear where that goal was. Was it to change the regime? Was it to change the nuclear program? Was it uh, to change all the policies as Secretary Pompeo laid out in a speech a couple of years ago, 12 things that he wanted to see Iran do differently, which I frankly agree with all of them. But none of that has happened. The nuclear program has advanced. Uh, the regime is the same terrible regime uh, and, and all, of that, uh, all of that continues. So, uh, you know, what the vice, what President-elect Biden did say during the campaign and, and his uh, advisors have said since is that he's prepared to return to the JCPOA in the context of mutual compliance. So obviously that means Iran meeting all of its obligations that will push it back to the year, uh, to the year uh, breakout timeline. Um, but of course that deal will be farther along, five years into a deal that lasts 10 to 15 years. And so that has to be dealt with. Um, but he has also said that his real strategic objective is not going back into the JCPOA. That's essentially a preliminary step and a step that if it's done, and there may be other ways to do it, by the way, that buys time, that sort of takes us away from Iran right on the cusp of a nuclear weapon in order to buy time to deal with this issue over a longer period of time. What his real strategic objective is, is a much longer term agreement, much longer than the 10 to 15 years of the JCPOA, and an agreement that is much broader that it applies not just to nuclear technologies, but to other technologies like ballistic missiles, and that it is much stronger in its inspections and its other enforcement mechanisms. And that also deals with Iran's uh, very uh, negative regional activities, support for terror and undermining of various Arab states and the like. Now that is an agreement, that is a strategic goal on which I think there's a lot of convergence between uh, the United States and Israel, and probably the Arab Gulf states, and the Europeans as well. There's a lot of countries that can get unified around that objective. And my feeling is that if at the very beginning of the administration, the United States and Israel sit down in that kind of high level, very professional uh, dialogue that we have conducted in the past that I referred to earlier, that is the way we have always worked through issues that we uh, uh, both agree are important, but may have some different approaches on, that there will be very great deal of openness uh, in, in a Biden administration to have that dialogue, that Israel will be able to make important contributions as it always has in intelligence and other, uh, other perspectives, and that they can help shape the combination of pressures and incentives and sanctions and negotiations and the whole environment that could draw Iran into the negotiation on that much longer term, much broader, much stronger agreement, which I think everybody can agree would be, would be a better outcome. So if, if they approach, both administrations approach it from that perspective of, of cooperation and, and narrowing areas of disagreement, you can't always eliminate them, but working through them toward common objectives over the longer term, I, I think it can still be a very productive discussion. The fact that I don't have any follow-up questions in this, this issue, uh, I think shows that it was a very thorough uh, answer. And I thank you for this, uh, Dan. And uh, can, you, can you tell me if, in your opinion, 
can Netanyahu or Israel fix the relationship with the Democratic Party? It's not a secret that the Prime Minister uh, gambled, uh, put all his coupons or jetons on the Trump and Republican Party in the last four years. Uh, this gamble uh, is not very successful uh, right now. Is it possible to renew the, the old days where there was a bipartisan uh, uh, support uh, to Israel in, in, in the Capitol Hill, etc.? Well, uh, you know, the heart and the strength of the U.S.-Israel relationship has always been its bipartisan nature and that there has been a bipartisan consensus around it. So that when uh, one administration changes or when party control in Congress changes, the fundamentals of the relationship are not uh, affected. And, you know, despite all the discussion about different voices in the Democratic Party and, you know, some new perspectives, if you still look at what uh, was in the Democratic platform, and I was a member of the Democratic platform committee, and I worked on this. It sounds very much like Joe Biden, and so when you listen to Joe Biden's policies, and when you look at what the Democratic-controlled House of Representatives uh, said when it spoke to this issue in three or four resolutions and other statements over the last year, uh, you find those same principles and, and, and kind of foundational commitments uh, really are, are, are unchanged. A strong commitment to Israel's security, uh, to Israel's ability to defend itself, to the U.S.-Israel security partnership with uh, unconditioned U.S. aid that helps Israel uh, defend itself from all the threats it faces, a strong commitment to defending Israel's legitimacy, anywhere that is called into question, abroad and at home, and a fundamental commitment to helping Israel achieve peace with its neighbors. That includes a two-state solution with the Palestinians, and it includes advancing normalization uh, between Israel and its other Arab neighbors. Those are fundamentals that I think, again, around which there's an enormous amount of bipartisan agreement in the United States and should be a good basis for agreement between uh, uh, Israel and a democratically controlled Washington. Uh, now, it, that doesn't mean there aren't differences from the Trump administration's approach. And so I think that's one of the kind of realities that uh, everyone will need to adjust to is that a new administration uh, and you know, will not necessarily uh, follow the exact Trump uh, model. Uh, I think indeed uh, it's been, it's clear that there will be changes. Um, and so if a going in position is uh, that the main uh, goal should be to get the Biden administration to uh, cut and paste uh, the Trump policies, that's probably not a very successful approach, but I think people are realistic and um, a go going in with a, again, an open and serious dialogue uh, to, to narrow areas of disagreement, but reinforce those very strong principles uh, of agreement, I think uh, can keep this relationship in a very, uh, strong and, and bipartisan foundation. That'll certainly be the approach from uh, from the Biden administration side. Last question, and on the personal level, uh, Dan Shapiro, uh, we are used to, to talk here in Israel about the, the risk, uh, uh, the grave risk to the Israeli fragile democracy. And I wanted to ask you, how did you feel uh, when we also and we could not believe our eyes the the pictures of uh, the Trump supporters storming? Capitol Hill, Senate and Congress and doing uh, whatever they did there. How did you feel as, as an American? Well, as an American and as somebody who worked for many years uh, on Capitol Hill, and I know those rooms and those buildings uh, very well, to me, they are the holy of holies, really sacred ground of our democracy. Uh, it was, first of all, heartbreaking, but it was also, it, it, I was also outraged. Um, this was uh, an insurrection uh, intended to disrupt uh, our democratic functions uh, as called for by our constitution 
to ratify uh, really in a basically a, a, a pro forma way uh, the outcome of a free and fair election. And it was incited by President Trump uh, based on a lie that he has told even before the election, but every day since the election, uh, that uh, the ballots were false and phony and fraudulent and that he actually won and he didn't win. Uh, it's something he couldn't accept just because of, uh, I guess, his, uh, uh, I, I, I don't want to speculate, but I suppose his personality, he can't accept that he lost. He did lose, but he convinced, unfortunately, tens of millions of Americans uh, that that lie was true and, and that uh, Joe Biden was not the uh, legitimate uh, president-elect, which of course he is. And sent some number of those people uh, followed his instructions to come to Washington and, and with violent intent to uh, go and uh, prevent the Congress from, uh, from carrying out uh, its duty. Uh, obviously it was tragic, five people died, including a Capitol police officer. It could have been far, far worse. There were clearly people with violent intent looking for Speaker Pelosi, Vice President Pence, President Trump's own vice president. Um, and uh, as bad as it was, it, it could have been even worse. Um, and it, even though it, uh, uh, it ended and of course the uh, election uh, was, was upheld and, and President-elect Biden will be inaugurated on January 20th, um, it uh, leaves a very deep scar uh, among uh, all the people who uh, really believe that our democracy could never be uh, sort of called into question and that we would always have a peaceful transition of power this is not a peaceful transition of power. People have already died and Washington is now locked down with uh, 10 or 20,000 National Guard troops to ensure that there isn't a repeat of it on Inauguration Day. Uh, that's uh, on President Trump. Uh, he is responsible for that. He certainly earned uh, the impeachment that the House of Representatives imposed on him a few days ago. Uh, the Senate will have to take it up and decide whether or not to uh, convict him of those charges. He certainly deserves it. Um, and it's, uh, it's a grave damage he's done to, uh, to our democracy. And uh, I'm afraid it will be with us for quite some time. Former Ambassador Dan Shapiro, it was a fascinating uh, uh, talk. Thank you very much for being with us. We will uh, go to uh, another quick, quick break and come back with some uh, conclusions. Thank you, Dan. Shalom. My pleasure, Ben. Thank you. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of the award-winning media news site, El Monitor, where we cover the Middle East with some of the best reporters and columnists anywhere. And I'm excited to announce our new podcast, On the Middle East, where each week I will interview newsmakers from the U.S. and the region about the latest news and trends with additional commentary from our on-the-ground correspondents. Those of you who follow the region know that what happens in the Middle East doesn't stay in the Middle East. And to cite another great movie line, every time the U.S. tries to get out, the region pulls us back. Your time is valuable, so let me promise you this. You will learn something and you will never be bored because each week we'll be talking with and listening to those leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in this critical and fascinating region. So please subscribe to On the Middle East with me, Andrew Parasoliti. Thank you for staying with us. I think it was a highly interesting uh, conversation with, uh, with uh, many headlines. 
On the Palestinian uh, issue, uh, Ambassador Shapiro said uh, that he's, he does not know if the president will nominate a special envoy to the Middle East, but he does know that the, the Middle East in general and the Israeli-Palestinian negotiation in particular is not on the, on the, on the, on the short list of the Biden administration. Not on, it's not in the first four topics that uh, occupy right now the administration. So he thinks uh, maybe there will not be a resuming of uh, the Israeli-Palestinian track, but maybe trying to, to keep it alive, to keep the idea, the two-state solution alive, maybe uh, uh, opening uh, the, the Palestinian office in uh, Washington again, and the consulate, uh, the American consulate in Eastern Jerusalem, etc. Moving to the Iranian track, uh, I think uh, whatever uh, Ambassador Shapiro just said will be uh, very good, uh, will be heard in a very uh, positive way to uh, Israeli ears because uh, the ambassador did not uh, uh, deny that uh, the administration is going to resume a negotiation with Tehran. But uh, he said that in his opinion, uh, President Biden is not going to go back uh, to the same agreement uh, with Iran, but to start uh, to try to produce a different uh, agreement to extend the tam- timeline and to deal also with the ballistic missile program and the Iranian behavior in the Middle East, etc. And uh, I, I think this can be this can calm some of the Israeli fears in Jerusalem. I asked uh, the ambassador uh, about uh, the incident of uh, storming the Capitol Hill by the the Trump supporters, and he was very, very sharp. He called it heartbreaking, and he said that uh, President Trump earned his impeachment. I hope you enjoyed this uh, podcast, and we will see you uh, back here next Monday. I'm Ben Kaspit. Take care. Bye-bye.